we're looking uh, today at some massively, massively important questions that go to the heart of human life. And that these are the questions, right? And they're very, very personal. And the questions are, who's the truly blessed person? Like, what's, what's the good life? What's, what's a great life? And, and why are they blessed? And how can I become truly blessed? So... Um, in our culture, if you were to do a survey, if you were to walk down Darling Street this morning and, and you, were, you were to you know, do a vox pop, walk up with a camera and interview and ask people, and you said to them, what, what in, in our, who is, who's the really blessed person? Who's living the really good life in Sydney today? What do you think people would say? What's the really good life in Sydney? The blessed life in Sydney, what's it? They're rich. They got money. Yeah, lots of it, eh? What else? Family. Surrounded by loving, caring family. Yeah, what else? Health. They're healthy. Yeah. Anything else? That's, that's, they've, they've successful careers. They're doing work that's well-remunerated, high status and emotionally satisfying, fills their life with meaning and purpose and means they're going to live, leave a legacy. <laughs> They've got a capacity for leisure and pleasure. And they're full of it, you know, because right now on Darling Street, they're sitting in coffee shops, they're having brunch, they're eating their smashed avocado and poached eggs and, you know, strong lattes and... Uh, Enjoying the good things in life. Yeah, did I see a hand down there? Said it be. They have a great church like ours. I didn't quite hear that. Sorry. Yeah, when you yeah, that's beautiful. So uh, this is this is a question, and then how do we get to what is the nature of the good life? And how do we get there? And how do we become a good person in the good life? This is, these are the questions uh, that philosophers and thinkers in every culture and every age have wrestled with uh, and started to be codified by Plato and Aristotle. And uh, what we drop into here in this story uh, recorded for us by one of Jesus' followers is uh, a group of people, probably a very, very large group of people, sitting around Jesus and listening to Jesus answer to these questions, right? And uh, so it's extraordinarily significant. What, you know, this is what Jesus thinks about the good life. This is what Jesus thinks about being a good person. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is, um, is, is listen to Jesus, um, but I wanted to make a point. I was, I was preparing for this, and I was reading a bunch of commentaries, and I read this by John Stott, who's a, he's now dead, um, but a very prominent Christian church leader in England. And Stott made this. He said, the Sermon on the Mount, which is this bit of the Bible that we're going to start talking about, is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it's the least understood and certainly it's the least obeyed. <laughs> and you're thinking... Well, that's only true in England. Here, in our church, we're much more spiritually evolved. I know. Um, we're not. 
and, and we're going to see why. It's what, what, what has infected the church, and I think it is an infection, is this idea that I can trust God for a ticket into the afterlife, a ticket into heaven, but I, I can't trust him for how I'm going to live today. And that's a problem, right? Because uh, Jesus is not, in the first instance, a uh, piece of celestial fire insurance that you buy for when everything goes wrong at the end of your life. Jesus said he came into this world to give us life in all its abundance and fullness. He came to connect us with God and lead us in to a great life here. And so that's what we're going to think about. Uh, but it's not easy. Um, I'm going to try and show you now at a philosophical level why it's not easy to obey Jesus and why we do revert to the ticket to heaven, but I live my own life now. And the way to think about that is to go to the Lord of the Rings. It was showing on TV last night. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, you know, um, they all live and the ring is destroyed. If you haven't, you, you need to know that, right? Just in case you... It all works out in the end. But in the middle of the story, uh, so if you don't know the story, there's this one ring. It's a, it's a source and symbol of evil and power in the world. And this little hobbit Frodo and his, and his, um, and his journed and sidekick and apprentice Samwise uh, Gamgee are on this journey, this story, to go and uh, destroy the ring and save the world against enormous opposition from Mordor and all the forces of evil. And little, little Frodo and Sam, they've got helpers along the way, in particular Gandalf and the elves and the dwarves and all the wonderful stuff. In the middle of the story, Sam and Frodo are talking, and Sam says to Frodo, um, what kind of story are we in? What kind of story are we in? And you know, that, that's, that's the question of the ages. That's the existential question for you and I to answer. What kind of story are we in? And I want to suggest that in our day and age here, there are really, there are fundamentally only two kinds of stories uh, that are told that we are in and how we answer which story we're in and which story we choose to live in will change everything about how we listen to Jesus and whether we take his teachings seriously. So uh, the one kind of story, uh, the one option, is uh, what one philosopher has called the nothing buttery story. Okay? Now what does that mean? Well, the nothing buttery story means... Uh, that, there, that this world consists of nothing but particles. We're nothing but the physical, the material. Nothing but your mind is nothing but uh, brain chemicals, neurotransmitters. Um, uh, love is nothing but a hormonal chemical reaction designed to ensure the replication of uh, your, your DNA. Um, life is nothing but a series of physical and chemical reactions. Nothing but. And uh, Dostoevsky, uh, the great Russian writer, who, uh, you know, I have to confess, like almost everyone I've ever met, I quote Dostoevsky to sound like I know a lot, but I've never read a full book of his. If you've ever tried my, you know, cry, you, know you just go... 20 pages in, there's like 50 different Russian characters, and each of them have four different names, and it's incomprehensible. So I'm waiting for a time when I can learn Russian and read it in the original. But until then, 
I'm joking. Dostoevsky says this. He says, really, in the story, what we believe in the Western world is we believe in particles and we believe in progress. All we have is particles. We're just particles. But these particles somehow, and we don't really know why, are making progress. So you've got to believe in that. And that's the story that we live in, essentially. That really there's nothing more, nothing but this, and we're fundamentally just material beings here uh, for a good time, not a particularly long time. And we're born, our particles come together, they make progress, we grow, our particles join with someone else's particles, they rearrange in another little particle, those little particles get organized and grow, Uh, our particles disintegrate gradually and then rapidly, and they go back to the ground and the other little particles grow, and so the cycle goes on. And it's an empty universe, it's a closed universe, and in that universe, really, Uh, what you've got to do is try and maximize your pleasure and minimize your pain. Uh, Maybe try not to hurt people along the way. Not really sure why you wouldn't do that. Maybe because you believe that some of their particles are connected to some redistributive karma in the world and it might go badly for you if you hurt someone else. But there's another story, isn't there? Uh, And the other story uh, is the something more. It's the something more story. And that's the story of transcendence. That's the story that says, you know what? Uh, There's got to be something more to life than this. I had a conversation during the week with a a guy who came to see me. At the end of a long period of lots of conversations with all sorts of people, he's a very successful guy. Uh, he has, he's achieved everything that he set out to achieve, right? So when he, was, when he was young, he had a vision for his life, and it involved uh, having a great career, making lots of money, having a lovely wife, having kids, uh, having great health, having leisure, all of that. So he's got all of that, right? And he turns up to come and talk to me because he says, you know, I just, there's got to be something more. I just feel like every year is just the same. And where's the more? So we started talking about Lord of the Rings and these stories. Because you see, here's, uh, here's the alternative to the nothing but. The nothing buttery story is actually the story of the Bible. And the story of the Bible is, look, um, we're not in an empty universe in a story that's really going nowhere. We're in a story that is a mixture of a cosmic a cosmic quest, a cosmic battle, and a divine drama, and a great romance. And the story is this, that uh, before this world was made, there was a, a God who was a community of perfect love, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this God existed in a whole spiritual realm, and in, in a reality inhabited with angels and spiritual beings. And some of these angels rebelled against God. And, uh, and there was this, and, and cosmic evil entered the world. And this community of perfect love, Father, Son, and Spirit, decided in their infinite wisdom that the way to defeat cosmic evil was to create a world and populate the world with beings with free choice made in the image of this community of perfect love, fill the world with these people, and, and then through their choice of love, overcome cosmic evil through this battlefield on this earth. And so he makes the world, and, and the image I sometimes have is it's like a giant stadium, and, and God and all the angels, the rebellious angels on one side and the good angels on the other side are there, and down on the playing field is, is our little world. And we're in this world. And our, our part in the story is to work with God 
in this great cosmic quest for justice to defeat injustice, for love to triumph over hate, for inclusion to triumph over exclusion, for beauty to triumph over, over all that is ugly and destroyed. And in the story, God doesn't just leave us to our own devices because we stuff it up, right? I mean, that's the problem. We're like Frodo in The Lord of the Rings. You know, he's on, but you know how flawed he is? Uh, so we're flawed, and, and we, we don't trust God, so we screw it up. And then God comes in to help us, and he says, I'm alongside you. I want to work with you. Just trust me on this. And we go, yeah, and then we go, no, and then we go, yeah, and then we go, no. And eventually he says, listen, I'm going to come amongst you myself, and I'm going to step into your shoes, and I'm going to take up the battle myself. And he does that in Jesus. And so Jesus, on the cross, finally triumphs over Satan and over all the forces of evil, and then Jesus says to you and to me, he says, listen, I've, I've done the hard work. Won't you come into my family now? Won't you come? I've, I've, I've won this new reality for you. I've won for you this space where God's will, heaven, it, God's will is done on earth as it is done in heaven. Won't you come and work with me? And we're drawn into the story and, and we're following a king who's won. We're following a champion who's defeated evil, but we're still in the battle and we've still got choices to make. And it's hard, but it's good. And the thing is, we know how it's going to end, right? Like, spoiler alert, God wins. And because God wins over evil, so do you and I. So do you and I. That's the something more story. And it's a story that says, that fills our lives with purpose and significance and meaning and says, what I do now matters. The choices you and I make are eternally significant every moment of the day. Now, those are the two stories. Our problem as, uh, as followers of, as, as people who are, who are trying to be Christian and trying to live for God is um, we actually, <laughs> we actually, uh, it's, like, it's like this, right? So we... Um, we want to have a foot in this story and a foot in that story, don't we? Like we know there's got to be something more. And, and you know, in our good moments, we're, yeah, 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 yeah. But actually, a lot of the time, we live as though we're in a nothing buttery story. So it's up to you. It's up to me. I've got to make life work. And, and when I live, and, and you know the way it resolves? Is in practice, I live in the nothing buttery story, but I get my religion on and trust Jesus just in case there's a something more story at the end. That's what we do, hey? And I don't say that with a hint of judgment or shame for you because that's what I do, right? And I'm paid to be better than that. <laughs> and I've been fighting this fight for 30 years. That's the, that's the battle to trust God. And so the path of Christian living, the path of connecting with God and living a good life is to actually plant yourself squarely here. Right? And Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount only makes sense and is believable if you're planted here. That's the, like, if you're, living, if you're living over here, the Sermon on the Mount is just nuts. It really is. Just have a read of it. You go, yeah, 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 yeah. No. <laughs> That's what we do, right? And you do this like, and I see us so as Christians, we do this, people who are religious, we go, yeah, it's a great idea, it's a great idea, it's a great idea, but no. 
Like, honest to goodness, if you're living in the nothing buttery story, you should never love your enemies. That is a stupid thing to do, right? Like, dumb. In the nothing buttery story, friggin' kill your enemies. Get rid of them, because they could kill you. They could kill your reputation. They could kill your family. They could kill your finances. They could kill your life. So you'd better get in and kill them first. And that's how most humans in most of history live. And when Jesus says, love your neighbor, that is unbelievable and unlivable if we live in a nothing buttery story. But of course, if we live in God's story, it makes perfect sense to love your enemies because your enemy can't really kill you. Because God has won for you eternal life. And you know how it's all going to work out. And in God's story, you've been God's enemy at various times, and he's loved you, and now he wants to make you into a little Christ, into a little God. So, of course, that's how you should live. Jesus' teaching on financial generosity. So I was talking to the World Vision guys about this yesterday. It is unthinkable and stupid to give your money away, except the, the very little that you can afford that won't in any way affect your lifestyle. If you live in a nothing buttery story, do not give your money away to poor people. I mean, they're poor because they lost the genetic lottery. They're just particles anyway. What the heck? It doesn't matter. They're just going to die probably sooner than you because their health outcomes are worse than yours. Um, but your life is no more significant or insignificant than theirs. And if there's nothing but particles and progress, mate, hold on to all your money and pass on as much of it as you can to your kids. Because life's short, life's brutal, and your wealth will insulate your, your, you through the short life from, from the worst things in it. But in the something more story, Jesus' teaching on money becomes very believable and livable. Because Jesus says, um, though I was rich, I've become poor, so that you, though you were poor, you might become truly eternally rich. All right? Uh, and in Jesus' story, he says, if you really want to find your life, what have you got to do? Well, you've got to lose your life. And what happens when you give money away? Well, you're giving away part of your life. And that's a stupid thing to do unless, unless you live in Jesus' story. Then, in fact, it's the best thing in the world to do. Because when I lose my life, when I give my life away, Jesus says, in this bigger story of something more, I'm actually going to gain my life. Okay? Now... That's really significant to set this all up. And, and what we're going to keep coming back to, the grapple for us, the, the existential challenge is always going to be to say, when am I living in the nothing buttery story and when am I living in God's story? That's it, hey? And that's not easy. That's not easy. But that's what we're called to do. Now, in this story, what Jesus, as, as he sets up this teaching... He's dealing with a bunch of people like you and I. And this is the context. Uh, not quite there. This is the context in Matthew 4, just before we got to the bit that Julie read. Uh, Jesus goes through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and doing something really odd, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. What's he saying? What's the good news of the kingdom? The good news of the kingdom is that there's something more. Right? And that something more is that the kingdom of God, that, that... And you say, well, hang on, Mark, what's the kingdom of God? What's a kingdom? A kingdom is the range of your effective will. So you have a kingdom wherever your will is done as you want it to be done, right? So right now I have a kingdom. 
uh, and my will is being done because you are sitting and pretending to listen to me and nodding and smiling and occasionally maybe even listening. And my will is being done because I can write stuff on here and I have an effective will. There's many, but my, my kingdom is very limited, right? Uh, Jesus, so God's kingdom is where God's will is effectively done. And what Jesus says, and what does God's will look like? What does God's kingdom look like? Well, we're going to see that. And Jesus says the good news is God's, the range of God's effective will, God's kingdom, God's presence, God's purposes, the arrangement of human life in such a way that this world looks like heaven has happened in Jesus. And this is what it looks like. He goes around proclaiming the good news, and he's healing disease and sickness among all the people. News about him spread over, all, all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. So what's the kingdom of God? Where God's will is done on earth as it's done in heaven. Where God shows up to heal the world spiritually. The demons are cast out physically, mentally. Everything that has gone wrong is made right. And Jesus comes and he says, this is, it's here, guys. And they're all going, woof, that's amazing. I can live with God. I can have the good life. The something more is accessible to me now. Okay. Yes, that's awesome. And large crowds, you can imagine. Imagine if, if, the, if this happened today. Large crowds come from all around and they follow him. Then the question on their minds would be this. As good Jewish people, they would have been thinking to themselves, uh, who gets to be in the kingdom? Who gets to benefit from God's action in history? Who gets to participate? Who gets to belong? How do I get there, right? And so this is what they would have thought. And, And most of the Jewish people of the day would have thought, well, the people who get to be in the kingdom of God are the well put together, the rich. So your, your material wealth was a sign that you were good with God. The, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the, the uber-zealous, the uber-religious, the folk who had it all together, the, you know, the, the white heterosexual married with two or three kids with a paid-down mortgage and a fully-funded superannuation who are on parish councils, stand on, sit on standing committee, involved in church leadership, and have it all together. They're the people. They're the people who get to be in the kingdom and get all these amazing benefits, right? And Jesus gathers this really mixed bag of people and he starts saying this to them. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Um, Now what he's not saying, and, and which causes great confusion in the church sometimes, and you may have heard this, is, is people can, you can read this as a con- spiritual condition that you have to be in to experience God. So if you really want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be poor in spirit. And well, that's just, that's not right. I'll tell you why. Because it makes a particular attitude of being poor in spirit this thing I have to do to get the good life, and Jesus is going to make the exact opposite point. And the point he's making is this good life, this blessedness, this kingdom of heaven is actually open on the basis of grace. It's radically open. 
even to the poor in spirit. That This is not saying being a poor in spirit is a good thing, right? If anyone ever says to you, well, you'll be a poor in spirit, because this is the problem with the Sermon on the Mount. I read this and I go, I don't, I don't want to be poor in spirit. What does that mean? I don't, blessed are those who mourn. So I can only be comforted if I mourn. I can only enter the kingdom of God if I'm really sad. I, I don't know, if you tried mourning lately, it sucks. It's better not to mourn, right? Like why, there's no spiritual benefit in poverty or in sadness. Uh, blessed are the meek. Like who wants to be meek? Like I'm a white Jewish African. Like meek, we don't do, right? It's not on. And it's not a spiritual virtue to be meek. Because what Jesus is saying to this crowd of people there, you are the, in your culture, you are the people who are very, very far away from the blessed life. You are the poor in spirit. You are the messed up, doubt-filled, hate-filled, dysfunctional, toxic, screwed-up outcasts. You are those who don't go to synagogue. You are those who've never, who, who, who don't memorize the Torah. You are those who are non-observant. You are, the, you are those who have nothing to bring to the party because you're poor, you're screwed up, you're messed up. Every chance you've made to do something wrong, you've taken that chance and you've doubled down on it. And you are those whose life, who, where, where life, the universe has screwed you over. You are mourning because your life is sad and miserable. And in a culture that said wealth and peace and affluence was a sign of being blessed, Jesus absolutely inverts that and goes, you know what? Anyone can be blessed because it's about connecting into God's kingdom by grace and by trusting Jesus. And that is open to all. Where the, where the life has screwed you over so you are just overwhelmed with sadness and you feel like your sadness excludes you from a life of blessing, Jesus says, no, it doesn't. That's the good news of the kingdom. And if you're meek, I mean, another word for that might be vulnerable, low status. If you're the sort of person who's always getting walked over, if you are the victim of domestic violence and you've never been able to establish healthy boundaries and people have used you and abused you, and chewed you up and spat you out. Jesus says, you can be blessed. The kingdom of God is yours. And that offends us, doesn't it? Our sense of propriety. I mean, that's where we go, no, 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 I've got, to, I've got to do something to contribute here, right? That's why we invert it and make some great virtue out of these things. And Jesus is saying, no, he's talking to a, a ragtag bunch of people who are... Um, sick, demon-possessed, full of mental illness, poor, coming out into the middle of nowhere to find healing from a, an itinerant rabbi. <laughs> he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now here, uh, with these more positive beatitudes, Jesus is, um, I mean, you, you can read these in one of two ways. You can say, well, this is actually a good beatitude, so, so even those who actually are pretty religious and have their life together, they will enter the kingdom. Or you can, you can continue in this negative vein and say, well, who are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, they're the people whose lives, and maybe you're like this, who where your life, you are in a chronic and permanent state of dissatisfaction and existential angst because of the evil and unfairness in the world. Because the world is evil and unfair. And every bit of your life, you might be like, no, my husband did this to me and he got away with it. No, 42 million people live in slavery, and that's wrong. And, and maybe your hunger and your thirst for righteousness has consumed you and made you hard and bitter. It's just, you know, even for hard and bitter people. 
who are driven by a hunger for righteousness, even these people, they're, they're going to get it. In this something more story, they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful. Ah, oh, you know, I, again, you could say, and, and, you know, I mean, two minds, really. You could read this as, well, even those who show mercy in a good sense, they're, they're in this kingdom, they, they belong in the kingdom, not because they do mercy, but because the kingdom is open to all. Or you could say, and I'm, I'm more inclined to that interp- this interpretation, that it keeps the thread going, that it says, you know, the merciful are those who spend their lives serving others with no recognition, no appreciation, and actually are taken advantage of, used, abused, spat out, yeah, if you've, I, I don't know if you feel like that sometimes. Yeah, man, I, I spend my whole life looking after other people. And now God owes me. Other people owe me. I've, I see so many people who end up bitter. They start off optimistic and helpful. And I'm going to, they work in the aid industry. They work in churches. They work in the caring professions, the healing professions. And, and they're merciful. And they end up bitter because life, the, the nothing but story doesn't work. The merciful get taken advantage of and sucked dry of all their mercy and spat out by a cruel, empty world. Except in Jesus' story, he says, no, it doesn't work that way. In the something more story, if you're merciful and, you've been, and your mercy has been, you've been sucked dry by the world, he says, you belong in this blessed place. And blessed are the pure in heart. Again, it could be a, you know, this is even, even the pure even the clean-hearted have a place in the kingdom. Or it could be. Blessed are the, blessed are the uber-religious. <laughs> blessed are those who've always done what's right. They've done what's right. And they think that God owes them. And they get angry because people who've done what isn't right get ahead of them. Have you ever worried about that? Have you ever felt that? I used to feel that. I, I, you know, you've, you've been generous with your money. You've tithed even. Uh, you've, you've looked after other people. You've put other people's interests ahead of your own. You've, you've listened to these countless sermons in church about put a, serving others, and you've done that at work. And and greedy, selfish, power-hungry people have trampled all over you and have got a way better life than you now. How many of you have do you, do you ever feel that? Like I look at that all the time. And he says, those, Jesus looking at these people, says, if you're pure, if you've done your best and you've been walked all over and your religion hasn't worked for you in the nothing but story, I've got good news for you. You're welcomed into Jesus' story where there's something more and it'll be, you'll be blessed. The pure in heart will be blessed. So come in. So come in. Blessed are the peacemakers. Again, it could be a good thing or it could be these are the people who have such a deep, profound aversion to conflict that they codependently insert themselves into other people's business to try and make peace, to deal with their own fear and anxiety. And, they, and we all know those people. And it doesn't work. The peacemakers are those who spend their lives wanting to make peace, but they discover in the nothing but story, we live in a world of ceaseless, endless conflict. He says, you know what, you peacemakers, you'll you'll get in. 
I don't know if you've ever spent time around peacemakers. You think I might be exaggerating or making this out to be something that it isn't. Um, uh, Margot and I, for years, have been involved with an NGO in the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of the Congo in a little town called Goma. It's a, a work called Heal Africa. Uh, and in the eastern part of the DRC is the most expensive, the largest, and the longest-lasting um, uh, mobilization or um, uh, a mission of the United Nations peacekeepers. Like, they've got, a, they've got an army from around the world in this part of the DRC. And you think they've been able to bring peace? We were there with a group uh, five years ago, and uh, it's still an active war zone. And in fact, what have the peacemakers done? Well, they've trafficked kids. They've uh, got involved in uh, smuggling cobalt and precious metals. Uh, they've raped the local women. So the peacemake, peacemaking in the nothing buttery story doesn't work. <laughs> if you've ever tried to make peace with, with uh, you know, two warring parties in your family, it just makes it worse. I try this. I've, I used to try this. I still do when I'm foolish. I'll hear a, an argument going on between two other members of my family, and I will insert myself as the peacemaker. Because in my family of origin, uh, conflict was really bad, so you always try and hose it down and make peace. What happens when I insert myself inevitably into these situations is it all gets worse. And Jesus says, for those of us who spend our lives trying to make peace and trying to make it all work in a nothing buttery story, he says, you know what, even you guys come into the kingdom and find that in God's great story, it's going to work eventually there will actually be peace, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. And you go, ah, oh, hallelujah. And you know, some of you are going to be persecuted for righteousness. Some of you um, are going to drive everybody else nuts because of your religious zeal. And you're going to be isolated and miserable. But even you, religious zealots, are an absolute pain in the neck to everybody around you. And you know who you are. Jesus said, I wouldn't say that. Um, Jesus says, even you, you're going to find a place where you belong and where the kingdom is open even to such as you. And that is a wonderful thing. So, what we've got to do, brothers and sisters, plant ourselves in God's greater story. And realize that when we do that, we put ourselves in the place of living a blessed life. Not because of what we bring, but because of what God opens up for us. The truly blessed life is to be found in Jesus Christ and to live into him and to do that consistently. And then to learn from him how to live in that story. And so that's what we're here to do. And I want to invite you to come back. And not just come back and sit here on a Sunday, which is lovely, and please do that because it's a little disconcerting preaching to empty chairs. Um, but to come back to learn together, to say we need, we need together to study and learn from Jesus so we can figure this stuff out because it's not easy. And we're fighting against this massive, massive cultural and emotional drag to pull us back into the nothing buttery story, to pull us back into a world without God. And we've got to fight and push against that and say, no, what does it actually mean here in Roselle, in Balmain, in Sydney, to live authentically in the kingdom of God? Jesus told the story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. 
And he said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So, there's the choice. Live in the nothing buttery story, not listening to Jesus, you have no foundation, and in the end, it will come crashing down around you. Just a matter of time. Hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it really will. Or, let's work together as a little spiritual family to actually put Jesus' words into practice and be a working example in this world of what a truly blessed life in the kingdom of God looks like. You up for it? You awake? Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, thank you for this story. Thank you for this teaching of Jesus. And I pray for us as a church that you will help each of us uh, indwell your story. And so trust you, Jesus, that we're in your kingdom now by grace. As the hymn writer says, uh, that nothing in our hands we bring simply to your cross we cling we come to you jesus full of gratitude and hope that we can live a blessed life in you irrespective of what we've done irrespective of our struggles our doubts our fears we the kingdom of heaven is here help us live in it now i pray jesus and help us learn what this looks like with integrity and courage. Amen.